Protect your wooden clarinet and get the most out of your reeds with Bovada two-way humidity control packs. Watch until the end of this video to learn more. Then head to bovadainc.com and use code CLARINET at checkout to save 10% on your next purchase of Bovada products. Hey everyone and welcome to the Clarinet Podcast. I'm your host Sean Perrin and this is the show for clarinetists. We are coming to you today for the first time for a video episode. So uh, we've got lights, camera and now action here in the Clarinet studio for the first time. Um, I think this really is the first ever video interview and I want to thank Sean for taking the time to come on the program here. And I'm not talking to myself, I'm actually talking to the first time we've ever had a guest with my name you know, Sean also on the program and also spelled the right way. So we are just having a bunch of firsts today <laughs> on the podcast. So thank you so much, Sean, for coming on and talking to me today here on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. I love your podcast and I'm really excited. You know, it's one of those funny things. When I first started this show back in uh, about 2015, 2016 type of thing, um, I remember you emailed me years ago now. We, we meant to get in touch much, much sooner. But uh, you, you had commented, oh, I really enjoy the show. And can I share a link? And here I am like, wait a minute, these famous clarinetists are wanting to share links to my show. This is so crazy. And uh, I think that link is still on your site till this day. So thank you not only for, for coming on, but for listening and spreading the clarinet love over the years as well. No, my pleasure. So this is an extra special episode because I think you may be the most kind of well-versed clarinetist really ever to come on the program. You've not only had an extensive orchestral career, but that has transitioned into a chamber music career, um, soloist. I mean, you've done film recordings, you've and, and composed pieces for some of the biggest orchestras. And and I uh, just want to give one caveat, though, to the listeners. If you do Google his name, unfortunately, you're not the DJ Sean Osborne also, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's one, one thing in the music business I haven't done. That's yeah, it. right. So maybe someday, but not that day is not today. So if you <laughs> so his website is osbornemusic.com and you can check it all out there. So um, let's get started. So Sean, I really want to ask you about what it was like. I mean, you've had such a long involved career. Can you hear me okay still? Yeah, I can. Thanks. Okay, great. Such a long involved career as a player. But what was it like back at the very beginning when I believe you became one of the youngest players ever in the Met Orchestra? Yeah, that was uh it was a it was a challenge at first, for sure. Um I think I think that schools are better now about um preparing students for the reality of uh of working in the music business and uh and the Met Orchestra is, a, is sort of a unique thing. They, they kind of work twice the hours of any symphony orchestra. So it was a lot, you know. Um, and, I, you know, I'd lived in big cities before and everything, but I moved to New York and, and I didn't know anybody. And uh, I'd played 13 operas before I got there, but none of them were on the first season. So everything was <laughs> new and it was like 32 different operas. And so I was just practicing a lot and sort of getting used to things. Um, and just sort of trying to to find my way and understanding, you know, oh, well, you know, what's a contract and how does this work and and uh, what are these clauses and what do they mean and and you know, uh, rehearsal overtime and all this stuff and you just have to learn all this stuff and uh, understand. Um, and there were so many things that were just sort of different about the Met and particularly about the personnel at the Met. It sort of attracted a, a different kind of person and. Um, but I remember one of the the first rehearsal, first rehearsal I did was for an opera called Il Tritico, which is now my favorite piece of music in the entire universe. Hmm. And uh, and then the second rehearsal was for La Boheme, and so Puccini. And uh, my first reaction during the rehearsals was, "Why is none of this rubato in my part?" <laughs> it's the orchestra <laughs> just ebbing and flowing all perfectly together because they've played it hundreds of times. And I do just like struggling to keep up as far as just like, wait, why did you all slow down there? And why are you speeding up now? <laughs> um, and so, you know, it got to be November and I felt like I'd already played a full season and it was only two months in. And so, uh, you know, those, those kinds of things uh, to really understand what, what an or orchestral job does provide and doesn't provide. And uh, there's always a little bit of a disconnect too because we're, we're taught in uh, when we do our music education we're taught to you know have an idea what do you think about this why are you playing it this way what does this phrasing mean what do you think how should we do this like and so you're always asking questions and answering questions yourself 
uh, about the music, and then you play an orchestra, and none of that's allowed anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's not your job. They, yeah, it's they tell conductor. you what, when, where, uh, how, and to play, and you just have to follow instructions. and And that can be that can be a little difficult to sort of get used to. Um, and uh, so you know, playing playing um, the way everybody else wanted me to. You know, I was like. I was like, oh, I'm going to be able to play this and this and this. And it's like, well, no, no too loud, too soft. <laughs> so, um, but the, the orchestra was really great, and that was exciting. Uh, and so for those who don't know, how old were you then when you joined? And also, um, what do you mean when you say that the Met plays about double the time of other orchestras? So I was 22, and um, the Met... Uh, which if you add up all the hours that you're in the rehearsals and the performances for the week, you are playing a service for between 36 and 40 hours a week, whereas wow. an orchestral job is somewhere between 18 and 20 hours a week. That's crazy. So amongst that very busy schedule then, how did you find the time to you know, expand outwards and eventually fully transition to a career more based around chamber music, solo playing, things like that. I mean, I, I imagine many players have started orchestral careers and then been, you know, plenty busy enough and they end up staying in that, you know, position, of course, for many years. Um, in fact, it's a perfectly normal and common career path to start an orchestral job like that and retire in the same position. So, so what caused you to kind of branch out, participate in the other orchestras, and then all the way kind of to the place we are today? Well, so it was sort of a gradual thing. And, and the first year, as I mentioned, you know, I didn't know any of the repertoire. And they, they had just finished recording The Ring, and then we played at the end of the season on like two rehearsals per opera. And I was <laughs> really struggling there, but it was, it was amazing. The Ring is amazing. But, um, you know, the Met has also a pretty limited repertoire, and after about four years, you've basically played it all, and then they just recycle mm. it with occasional additions each year. And they commissioned three operas while I was there, and that was exciting. Um, so eventually, you know, you're not practicing a lot for the job as much as you used to. Once you know all those Puccini operas, they, they keep coming back because they're great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I... I I've always liked chamber music. It's my favorite thing to do always. And so I put together chamber music concerts when I was in New York and occasionally get asked to play on other chamber music concerts. And then in 1998, I had an opportunity to uh, work on my master's degree. And um, there was no one I really wanted to study with more than Eric Mandat, who I had met when we were both students at the Eastman School of Music. Mm -hmm. And he... Uh, I was at the premiere of folk songs, and it completely blew my mind. I had no idea the clarinet could do all those things, and it was incredible. And so uh, I went to study with him, and um, through that sort of experience and uh, taking a little time off of the Met, uh, I, I realized that there were there were more possibilities than were than I thought had been available to me. And so I decided that I wanted to concentrate on writing music, which I had started doing. Um, I'd written about, I don't know, 10 or 12 pieces by the time I left the map. And, um, and I wanted to play chamber music, and I could do that anywhere, and so I was picking a few places, and I grew up in the Seattle area, so I chose Seattle and moved back here, and uh, I've been doing that ever since, and I'm really enjoying it. I get a lot of variety in my career. Less security, uh, which after some of the financial shenanigans of the last 20 years is a little difficult sometimes but uh but it's definitely uh musically fulfilling for sure absolutely yeah this has been such a challenging time i mean especially through the pandemic i mean it's been so difficult i imagine for so many musicians and you know this is um it's it's crazy because it's it seems like just yesterday we were still um in the middle of that and now it's supposedly over but i don't know about you but in in my city music has really taken its time creeping back yeah, you know, it seems like it seems like now, just sort of just this spring seems to be things sort of becoming normal-ish again. Um, last spring, it was still pretty low attendance at all the events that I was uh, participating in, but it seems pretty good now. And you know, I think the government did an excellent job of trying to preserve uh, artists. Um, you know, it really felt like pandemic assistance and grants to arts organizations and things like that 
really did, you know, what, what I, I think the government is supposed to do in these situations, and it seems like it really helped, and I know that um, grants to the organizations that I, I run and I work with uh, really helped keep them afloat, and uh, yeah, super helpful. Yeah, we had a similar thing up here. I've actually not thought too much about what it was like in the States exactly because I just don't know. Um, but here we did have a lot of support too for people to get through it. And I'm, I, you know, some people were criticizing, you know, they think they're giving too much or the wrong people might have gotten it or whatever. But I mean, it allowed people to continue living and that's really important. And we, we all, you know, got through it. And, and here we are on the other side of it, hopefully now for sure. So, right, right. Um, so before we move on from the orchestral stuff, do you have any spe specific advice for, for let's say a college student who's just graduated and they're considering an orchestral career and and sort of two prongs this question advice for the student who's looking to get into the orchestral career and then also advice for the student who maybe is looking to to not do that and pursue more of their own kind of freelance chamber oriented lifestyle yeah um i do have some advice now uh i have to say also that i think things have changed a lot in the last 20 years and you know they probably changed 20 years before that a lot too because I talked to some of my colleagues in the Seattle Symphony who have been there for a long time you know, in the 1970s you know this is one of the oldest orchestras in the country and and most people had a, a day job you know sort of day job not really a day job but like you know some other job that they did uh, you know the bass clarinetist here for the longest time was had a photography business and he's still doing that um, so so now I think as far as orchestral careers go I think that on the clarinet, there's been a, a sort of a paradigm shift in in the way people play in order to get jobs, and I think it's it's become very very important to be able to play soft. Mm. And I, I, there's a fantastic book by Sharon Sparrow, who is the associate principal flute of the Detroit Symphony, called Six Weeks to Finals, and it's published by Presser, and it's a magnificent book, really fantastic book. Um, and you know because everybody's going to show up and they're going to have all the notes in the exact perfect place so you have to do that also but then um, they really want to know if you can play soft and you've got to play the room too like you have to play softer in an audition than you would really ever play in, in an orchestra getting a job is actually quite in a lot of ways a different skill set from doing the job um, and to understand how that works, I would definitely say encourage any student to take lessons from people who have orchestra jobs, who have recently won orchestra jobs, or especially teachers whose students are currently getting orchestra jobs. Mm. And see what, what sort of advice those people have to do that. Now, I've had a few students recently who've won some orchestra jobs, but they, they went on to study with other people after me. And so they've had a lot of advice from various different places. Um, I would also advise students who are considering orchestra jobs to not discount a military band career because mm. at least half the clarinetists who are employed as performers in this country are employed by military bands. And if you get a job in one of the DC bands, it's a fantastic thing. And you can, you know, you, you pursue, uh, they pay you half your, hours each week is to pursue some related musical aspect that you want to engage in and that can be composition or repair or or teaching or chamber music and it's really a fantastic uh, thing and even if you're not in one of the DC bands you can still have a great great career going on for that so um, they're just find the people who are doing what you want to do and ask them how they got there and if you're not um, if you're wanting to do, you know, freelance or doubling or things like that, it, it's the same sort of advice. It seems these days that a lot of, I think it's as, it's more important, I think, to be attached if you don't want to be in, in a uh, orchestra job that if you want to pursue like chamber music or something else that you really need to be attached to a university to make more job security than it was, say, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And... So I would encourage people, you know, that's a lot of schooling. A lot of places won't even look at you unless you have a doctorate. A lot of, a yeah. lot of states are required by law to have 
all the candidates have either master's or doctorate degrees, or they won't even, you, you, they'll reject your resume out of hand. And there's a certain, just like there's a certain skill to winning an audition, there's a certain skill you need to ask the right kind of questions, you need to, um, you know, at your interview, you need to play the right kind of pieces at your uh, audition recital. All those kinds of things need to happen if you want to do really well uh, getting a university job. Um, and a full-time university job is, is great security and great money and it can be a very enriching, varied kind of uh, career. And even if you're a lecturer at a university, uh, you know, part-time, that can also be really enjoyable and you've got access to colleagues who are wonderful and performance and recording facilities usually and things like that. And uh, it seems like many of the universities are heading more towards the lecturer model. But there are some that, uh, particularly actually in red states, which are, are expanding their music programs and creating more full-time positions. It's good to hear, because in Canada, for a long time, one thing that's been happening, especially where I live, is that they hire people really as part-time, and they'll hire, they'd rather hire three part-time people than one full-time person, and it's really sad. It is, it is. Yeah happens all the time <laughs> so before we again move on from the orchestral talk i'm really interested in the difference um that you've experienced between playing you mentioned the met uh kind of a rubato and you, you feel like it's you're part of something that you're not familiar with back then but um you became familiar with that but then of course you've done a lot of other or orchestral playing uh, guest principal playing um but then even some playing on like film soundtracks and game soundtracks and things like that so what what are kind of the differences fundamentally of playing with those three types of orchestras? And as an aside to that, it says you played on the Windows XP soundtrack. Am I reading that right? Yeah. <laughs> so what does that mean? <laughs> well, so on Windows XP, which I think those sounds are still carrying it into the modern Windows programs right now, when you make a mistake and Windows goes, dunk, that's actually a live orchestra. Oh my God, I did not and, know that. And it literally took us an hour to get that one note to line up right in the way that they wanted. They'd be, I know they'd be the like, exact sound. Oh. I can hear it in my head. That That's like a kind of a clang, but also a, yeah. a, it's like an orchestral hit that's almost backwards. It's kind of a cool sound. Yeah. So it'd be like, dunk, and they'd be like, all right, last trumpet. All right, dunk. Wait, the timpani's early. Dunk, too much piccolo. You know, <laughs> and we just oh kept out for a, a long, long time. <laughs> but the neat thing about Windows XP is they wrote this, this like four minute orchestral piece it's like, welcome to Windows XP. And then this narrator talks over it. And then these giant clarinet solos in it. And it was sort of fun. So you're not going to believe this. But when I was a kid, I specifically like downloaded that music. And it was some of the music that I think, because I don't know, I was what? I think back then I was about 10 or 12 years old, just getting into band. And I loved that Windows XP piece. So oh, guess, cool. <laughs> isn't that weird? Isn't that, I'm sure I still have it on my computer somewhere. And I was like, no way. He's not playing on the Windows XP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was me. So every time billions of errors have happened across the world, you're part of that little boom that happens. Yeah, and I get three cents every time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's crazy. That's actually one of the craziest stories I think I've ever heard on the podcast, to be that ubiquitous. In a, yeah. as a sound, yeah. as part of culture. Like, that's that's some, like, I'm having my mind blown a little bit philosophically about that. Like, it's just, like, the weird impact that something like that can have. It's just a note, but how many billions of times was it heard around the world or, or right now, you know? Well, and another thing around the world that was kind of, you know, fun and daunting in a way was, um, so the Met plays, a, 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 for half the year, they have live radio broadcasts. And they're played... Uh, when I was, uh, it was like early, it was like 91 or 92, um, they, they came to us and they said, oh, now we're going to be broadcast all throughout Russia, too. And so we had already been broadcast in Japan and all the U.S. stations. And, and so adding Russia and Europe, that meant every time zone on Earth. So literally heard around the world. So if I made a wow. mistake, it was like, oh, that's the squeak heard around the world. <laughs> that's not even a joke. It's it's completely <laughs> true. It's it's literal. <laughs> yeah. So, so what, yeah. what what other games did you or movies did you play on? Because I saw uh, Animatrix Two is another strange one. I actually had that back in the day. It's mentioned on. Yeah, that was yeah. kind of fun. So so it's it, music is sort of the last thing that happens on a movie. So sometimes they'll mm -hmm. have like we'll do like emergency patches sometimes that they can't get. Uh, space in wherever they usually did it in London or LA or whatever but we'll also do like the whole thing 
in one situation. Like we did uh, something called The Founder, which was uh, Carter Burwell. It was some beautiful music, and it was sort of a shame the studio didn't really support it because I thought the movie was really good too. Um, lots of neat, fun clarinet stuff on that. Um, but then, like, uh, I think the, the the Matrix stuff, you know, they were doing those two movies all at once, and, and we were we were recording the stuff like you know three four weeks before the movies were released. Um, because they have to film everything else, and then they put the music on. And so sometimes these composers are being like, all right, you know, hey, our usual guy can't do it. Can you write us, you know, 30 minutes of music for tomorrow? And these guys just got to dash it right out. And sorry, are you writing the music sometimes, or also play, or playing it mostly, or...? No, I'm only playing it. And the founder, are you talking about the one that was about Ray Kroc? Yeah. Oh, that was a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. I thought really so great movie. I really liked it. Anyone who hasn't seen that, go check it out. It's a very interesting. Actually, I read the book too, which I think was called Grinding It Out, um, about Ray Kroc, his life. He's the McDonald's guy, of course. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the founder was actually a really cool, cool movie. So um, yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, you know, so what? What about the playing differences then? So I mean, it's got to be a totally different type of pressure playing live, even though it is heard around the world, um, versus <laughs> you know, um, a more typical orchestral gig that's not broadcast around the world, and then. You know, recordings versus these film soundtracks, which might have only been written yesterday. You know, I find that the 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 variety of the ways you play and the way you approach the music is greater in recording sessions than in, say, orchestral world. Because in the orchestral world, we all know the music usually. I mean, there's new pieces, of course, um, and and we know how to play it. We know what sort of our role is. But when you're, you're sight reading this music, that's going to go on you know, a CD or a movie or a game, um, you have to make a lot of decisions independently. And, um, like, if you notice something that seems like a wrong note, with your experience, you can just sort of change it. And you figure if they if they don't like what, they, what I just changed it to, they'll let us know. Because these guys have really good ears. Also, I would say that recording for these things, there's a lot more money behind them than there is when you're recording, say, classical orchestral CDs. And, uh, you know, I've recorded a number of those as well. And because of the time constraints and the money constraints, they kind of like the classical stuff, they really have to just sort of crank it out. So you've got to be on your game. And if it's not great, then they're just going to take it anyway. Um, but with the, uh, like I mentioned, the Windows XT, like we spent an hour on one note because they had money behind it. And sometimes we'll spend a long time getting everything exactly right. And mostly it's about lining up because they can always, you know, fuss with the dials if they want to to get balanced things. Um, one of the funniest things though happened with like clarinet specific in, um, I forget what movie it was. It might've been Wedding Crashers, but it was some movie where I was uh, playing and in the part it said, it said Eastern European Jewish style. <laughs> and so I played this big solo and I klezmered it up and, and I'm sliding and I'm lots of vibrato and I, I got the tone going, you know, the Woody Allen tone. And um, so they come over the speaker after the first take and they're like, oh, whoa, that sounds too much like klezmer. That's like, <laughs> what you asked for. Uh, duh. <laughs> yeah, that's what then, it says. Then we do the second take and it's like totally straight and I play it straight. And they come with a speaker and they're like, uh, maybe we should dial that back up to Klesmer again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. I remember the weirdest thing I ever saw marked on a score was, uh, it was some church gig. I was playing a Christmas thing or something, but it just said I was playing congas. For those who don't know, I'm also a percussionist, but um, I was playing some conga part. And it said, with great rejoicing. And so I'm back there just like giving it a mile with a huge smile on my face. And I don't know what that means, but hopefully that was close enough. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I heard one yeah. of the neatest lines in a in a recording session somewhere where they had this engineer who was he was great. Uh and and sometimes sometimes people involved in these projects, especially movie projects, are don't really have a lot of experience in other aspects of music. And so sometimes the composers are maybe a little less versed in what's going on here. So uh somebody was on the podium, it's usually the composer, I don't remember in this specific situation. And he asked over the he asked the engineers back in the booth. He's like, um, "Can you do blah 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 with the click? You know, something like that, or change this?" And um, the guy comes over the speaker. He says, "Yes." And and then the the composer's like, "Incredible! Says, really? You can do that?" And we he, he hear over the speaker, <laughs> "Click, not a hobby." 
<laughs> that's, that's great. That's my line these days when they're like, you can do that? I'm like, not a hobby. Not a hobby. You got to get the click in there too. It's started <laughs> coming in from above. So does this, uh, excuse my ignorance, but does this type of recording happen in Seattle or is it you travel down to LA for that kind of thing or where are these film recordings done? Well, Seattle's been, uh, Seattle, Seattle does um, a fair bit of it. We do, we do less than we, do, we were doing 20 years ago. Um, but now it's a lot of it's decentralized. They do a lot in Utah. They do a lot in Eastern Europe. They do a lot in Australia. So really? um, a, a lot of places uh, are recording film music now. Um, I imagine there's probably a fair bit in Atlanta with that big film industry they've got going on there now, too. Um, I don't know for sure, but I, I probably. And, of course, places like Nashville and New York have tons and tons of recording studios in space. So there's probably some stuff going on there, too. Yeah, it's crazy to see. Like, a, a, We have a film, not a film, um, a show that was filmed here recently called Something About Zombies. Oh, man. I'm forgetting it now. I, I just watched it. I really should know. But uh, anyways, it was filmed in my city, and it was so weird because we're watching the movie, and I'm like, look, there's where we got married, and <laughs> look, there's my old apartment building, and uh, <laughs> it's not Walking Dead. It's that other one with about that fungus or whatever. Um, oh, I can't remember yeah. the name right now. The yeah, last yeah. Of last of Us. Yeah, yeah. And so everyone was so sad when the filming moved to Vancouver for the next season or something. Oh. But, uh, but yeah, it's always interesting to think about, and I, I I don't know if everyone thinks about it, but I sometimes will sit down watching a movie or something. I'm like, hmm, who did that solo? Or, you know, and, right. You know, and it's just real people behind every one of these little decisions they're seeing on screen and, and hearing and, and everything. And uh, it's such an interesting industry. So I think it's so amazing that you've been sort of part of all these different things and, and uh, you know, still active in, in so much, much else too. So really amazing. So Twin Peaks ages ago has some really great soundtracks. Oh, yeah. um, and I've always wondered who played clarinet on that, and I've never been able to figure it out. I don't, I, I don't know, actually. Um, yeah. I mean, I That's near I, you, the falls. The I falls. they the, did uh, it here in town. Yeah, I wonder, because it was filmed, I know, very close to, well, maybe not very close, but the falls are near Seattle somewhere yeah, that so that was actually falls. based on. And then they, they filmed yeah. a lot of it up in um, North Bend. And uh, yeah. I actually, my best friend from high school was an extra in one of the episodes. <laughs> oh, really? That's so cool. Yeah, yeah it's sad because uh, Badalamenti recently just died. So uh, the, the composer of much of that music. So Sometimes very much too bad. Sometimes they have listed on IMDb, but I'm glad yeah, that I should check that out. become more of a thing to credit the individual musicians in movies. You can see that sometimes. You know, it's when I was a kid, I was sitting in the car listening to Feliz Navidad. <laughs> I remember it specifically. And I was in the back and I said to my mom, what is, who is this? And she told me the name of the singer. And I said, no, 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 I mean that saxophone player. Who is that? And she's like, I don't know. I was like, why not? I mean, why do you know the singer but not the saxophone player? Now, I was like six years old, so I didn't understand. But but um, that still kind of blows my mind. Like, I like when I open up program notes or something. I know what everybody did, Right. you know? So it's nice to see people getting more credit. That's really, that's really, really good to hear. So... Um, so let's talk a little bit about clarinetissimo. Great. Tell me all about it. Well, um, so, uh, when I moved to Seattle, uh, there were a number of reasons why I wanted to, uh, get some clarinet stuff going. And, uh, I was talking to a colleague of mine who I, I formed a chamber music group with. He was a trombone player and he had this thing that he did. He was at the university of Washington. He did this thing called trombonology where they had a little <laughs> day of trombone. And uh, I thought, oh, hey, that sounds like fun. Well, uh, how about clarinetissimo? That's that's wonderful. And apparently, after I thought of this, other people thought of this. So there's some other groups over there who stole my name. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, I know the world's big enough for us all right now, so that's fine. But um, so it started out as just one concert, and I did it because I wanted to sort of, you know, I wanted to maybe get some students. You know, attract some people that way, get to network, invite some colleagues to, you know, so they could hear me because I was new in town. Um, also have fun and uh, play with uh, some of my students. I had a couple of advanced students and we, we played a clarinet quartet and I played the Weber Concertino and, you know, some stuff, some student-oriented stuff. And I did some conversations about, you know, here's what you listen to and if you're studying this piece, you might do this and then I would play it. And uh, it started getting bigger each year, and then we had a, our first special guest was Eric Mandet in 2005, and we started attaching ourselves to universities, Cornish College of the Arts, and Lee Dub when I was on the faculty there. Um, and then um, 
we made it a whole day and I invited vendors because I was realizing in, in Seattle in particular there's there's a real problem with clarinet education. Um, there, there are literally thousands of students who play the clarinet and maybe 150 of them take lessons. So, uh, and most of those are sax lessons and band directors are, I don't know, sometimes they, they don't know what to do and sometimes they, they don't care and so it's difficult. You, you go to schools and you volunteer and you find you're going to seniors in high school and you have a section of six seniors in high school and they're all playing Rico two and a half reeds on the mouthpiece that came with their clarinet and their clarinet's unplayably broken and they don't know it because they don't have any experience and the band director doesn't know it because they didn't tell them and it's just a lot of sort of like maybe just lack of knowledge and lack of communication happening and uh, so I'm trying to get clarinetist Momo to sort of like fight against that where you can go and you can try mouthpieces and, and understand because you know you can talk to your blue in the face and say if you play this mouthpiece this is what it's going to feel like but until the student actually plays a mouthpiece that lets the air go through the instrument they really just aren't going to know and i can't tell you how many times i've seen a student blow into a real mouthpiece and go it's yeah. it's insane how awesome it is for them when that happens and uh I want to make sure that the students have a place where they can do that and you know unless you live in like LA or New York and even sometimes in those cities it's hard to find a place where you can try you know 20 clarinets or 10 clarinets and find a good one usually even in Seattle you know most of the time we have like two or three that are available of each of the good models and and, and that's it um, you know, fortunately, we live pretty close to Bakun, which is a wonderful place uh, in Vancouver. And um, but at Clarinetissimo, I get all the manufacturers to send they send extra uh, uh, inventory to our local vendors, and so you can go and you can try twenty buffets, and you can try fifteen Selmers, and you can try twenty Bakuns, and that's the only place you can do it all year. And I, I'm really happy to provide that service because. We are a free festival too. It doesn't cost anything to do any of the um, events. We have three master classes. We have a workshop with a different theme every year. We have two performances. We've got two days of vendors. Um, and we have a new thing that we've been doing for a few years. The first year was before the pandemic, and the second year was after the pandemic, called the Clarinet Olympics, and that's targeted to younger students. Um, <laughs> where Olympics. Uh, it's, uh, they get a prize, uh, a bunch of, bunch of uh, manufacturers and vendors have donated things. They get a prize uh, swag bag full of um, stuff if they compete, but nobody's really competing. All you have to do is complete uh, complete the task and things like chromatic scale and play this little duet and then you get your little swag bag and so so free stuff and then we can get you know good reads in the hands of students and <laughs> hopefully they'll they'll play those good reads more often and they'll sound better and when they blow through the instrument they'll have more fun and they'll stay with the clarinet and they'll encourage their fellow students to have more fun with the clarinet you know it's all about just getting as much clarinet as we can get going on and this is our 23rd year, and we're really excited. We've been doing it for a long time, and it's I'm still able to keep it free with generous public and private donations. So, wow, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, well, I think that's really great. And, you know, I love kind of the backstory because, um, you know, I obviously don't get to go to Seattle and, and see it, but um, I think that it's interesting to know that the situation there is kind of like it is everywhere, I guess, whereas there's so many kids in band or marching band or things like that, and then there's so few people taking lessons. And then... Uh, even me, when I was younger, I I was not the kind of person who was told to take lessons either by my band teachers, unfortunately. Um, and then the band programs, we have a lot of clinics, they call them, where you go out and you teach in the school. But it's really like a Band-Aid. You've got 10 kids who've never had a lesson. They get an hour and a half with a professional. And then it's like, let's see how much we can fix. Hopefully we don't need you for another six months kind of thing, you know. Um, so it's really kind of a weird situation. So to get those kids out there and get them with, you know, better equipment and something they can actually play on and, and, and try and actually be inspired is such a great, great thing. Not to mention to be inspired by the performances, right, and the actual playing that they're experiencing and hearing. I mean, that makes a much, much bigger impact than we realize. I mean, I've, you know, we've got two kids now and our youngest is uh, too young, but the, the older one is almost five and she's been to a few different concerts and things now and 
it's just so they're so impressionable at that age. And I think that they really, really. And I remember too when I was six, I, I I saw the orchestra for the first time, and I saw cats play, and I couldn't believe that there was an orchestra in the pit. My mom didn't tell me until after. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? Like there's there's music that's live. I didn't realize, right? Right. So these things really hit hit for children. And I bet those kids that go to the clarinet Olympics remember it forever. You know? Yeah, I mean that helps. Totally. Them. Absolutely. So this has been absolutely great. I really have enjoyed chatting with you today. I do have. Um, one one more question to ask before we move on to the uh, I, I used to call it the lightning round. I just don't like that name, but it's just some quick questions. <laughs> I want to ask them of every guest this year, and then maybe assemble a blog post or something, and just kind of we'll see what happens. But right. some musical questions, and then some general life questions. But but uh, before we do all that, is there anything that you wish I asked that I did not that I did not ask you? Mm, gosh, well, I, you know, I I don't know. I, I do want to mention that. Um, Clarinetismo has expanded into a full concert series, and we do chamber music. Yeah, here. yeah, Orca. And, yeah, Orca Concerts, and, um, you know, you can go to uh, orcaconcerts.org and find out all about us and Clarinetissimo. And we have a YouTube page where you can see some of our performances. Um, and, yeah, so I would recommend that. Uh, and, you know, feel free to contact me, and I write lots of music, and I write lots of clarinet music, and so... You know, if you like it, please play it, and yeah, we'll have fun. And can people buy your pieces and access your recordings too on your website, osbornmusic.com? Yes, they can. Uh, in fact, most of the music that I have composed is available for free download. Oh, nice. And uh, a lot of it has uh, uh, recordings on YouTube um, and more to come. I've been really busy this spring, but, uh, you know, I'm going to get back to putting up more material on YouTube um, real soon. Fair enough, fair enough. And, you know, I meant to ask you, too. Um, uh, you know, first of all, Eric Mandad is a glaring omission here on the podcast. I've got to get in touch with him. <laughs> Have him on as a guest for sure. It reminds me. I see him featured on the homepage here of the or- Orca concerts. So so uh, that made me think of it as well. But um, did you – I heard you playing some kind of uh, – uh, what's it called? Uh, multiphonics before we kind of went on here. Yeah. Did you study a bit with William O. Smith in Seattle there? He was living there. And no, um, um, he recently passed. Bill was a wonderful, wonderful person. And I, I didn't actually take any lessons with him. But one thing I did do, I mean, it's kind of a lesson. Um, I recorded his five pieces for uh, solo clarinet. And before I recorded it, you know, I didn't want to commit it to picks, uh, to bits um, with errors. So I went and I played it all for him. And I got some really great insights about it and what his inspiration was for uh, some of the pieces. And, and that was lovely. And, uh, you know, I heard him play many times. And uh, we did one improv session together. It was great. It was really a lot of fun. Uh, it was it was Bill and me and Eric Mandat and a student of mine who was big into improv and creative stuff named Beth Fleener. And so the four of us, it was sort of like, you know, my student, myself, my teacher, and my grand teacher all together. And it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, Seattle's got kind of a pretty thriving new music scene, and so that was really neat. You know, I saw him play in Vancouver. Um, was that the performance you're talking about right now? Because I remember there was actually several people. It's It's been so long, like that's nearly 20 years ago. Um, the Clarinet Fest, it was in Vancouver? Clarinet Fest, yeah. I think it was like 2005 or something like that. <clears throat> I mean, um, I saw him play a lot because he would play in yeah, the yeah. a lot, so... But I, I remember that performance as well. I remember specifically those pieces because back in the day, uh, I would just buy CDs. And before, people who you know were born in the last 20 years won't really know this, but you couldn't always just like preview music and decide if you liked it before you bought it. Like You would look at a CD and literally judge a book by its cover and just order some CDs and you'd find out what you got, right? So one time I was ordering a bunch of classical music CDs and I saw this William O. Smith album, the, the pieces for clarinet. And a solo clarinet, too, at that. And I remember being so surprised. I put it on, and I heard clearly multiple instruments. I'm like, what on earth is going on here? And then that's when I figured out about the double clarinet stuff. And and because uh, I was like, there's no way this is one person. Oh, yeah, okay, it is. <laughs> it's, and it was also super you know, bizarre and interesting. And, uh, yeah, I really, really regret not having him on to talk at some point because such an interesting, interesting mind and uh, really interesting pieces of music as well. But yeah. I've never played any of them. I really should. <laughs> yeah. They're and tough. They're you, tough. You brought up something interesting that I, I just want to briefly mention is that uh, compact discs. 
So uh, mm. I, I know vinyl's making a comeback, which I think is good because vinyl's got some neat stuff to it. And compact discs, I've, I've always sort of done that. And I would encourage uh, listeners, especially young listeners, to consider buying the physical product for two reasons. First of all, streaming is theft, and if you want the musician to get paid, you really need to buy the physical product. Okay, that's a great reason on its own, but the second great reason is that if you're doing streaming only, there's some executive somewhere who someday is going to decide that you can't listen to that anymore. Yep, it's happened to me. If you have the physical product, no one can come into your house and take it away from you. Even if you get the physical yeah. product and you, you know, even a download, if you pay for a download and you download it onto your device, then no one can say you can't listen to that again. And that's already happened. And, you know, especially if you listen to stuff that is sort of rare and hard to find, you probably want to make sure that you can always have access to that. I totally agree. And I've actually heard that CDs are making a comeback a little bit in the same way that vinyl kind of did. And I'm sort of excited about that because I still have over 400 CDs and um, a really kind of vast collection of that. And it was one of my biggest interests when I was younger was to buy CDs and get into music. And I really miss actually getting into a a CD, partly because I paid for it, but partly because that's how it worked. Like you'd put in a CD and you didn't have the entire musical output of the whole world on shuffle. You just had that CD. And it, you were able to focus differently on the music. And uh, I think in, in many instances, like, it's really the only way still to listen is, like, to put in the album and, and uh, you know, focus your ears, you know, on what you're listening to. So, but you're also right so much about the, this, the streaming is theft thing. I mean, it's, it's funny because people think, well, it's, but it's legal, you know. It doesn't, it doesn't really mean it's not, <laughs> doesn't mean it's not theft. It's, legal. <laughs> it's not really theft because I guess you get paid a very, very small amount. But I will say that, like, the few copies of my CD that have sold um, when I did my album project. Um, I have hundreds left, by the way, so if you want one, let me know. I'll send you one. Just send me the postage or something. Um, but uh, the, the few copies that actually did sell kind of at full retail, let's say $10 or more, um, even though it's just a few, have paid more than the thousands of streams, you know. And it's you listen to an album, the artist is going to get literally two cents. It's crazy. Right. So if you enjoy it, yeah, definitely go out there. And But, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't have a CD player. And I'm, I guess I get that too, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so you can, download, you can download. Yeah. You know. Bandcamp, actually. Are you on Bandcamp? No, I'm not, actually. Yeah, Bandcamp's a really good one. They have good sound quality too. And uh, I've actually supported some indie artists that I know that way. And, uh, great. you know, you pay 10 bucks for their album. I think they get like 80% of it or something. Wow, that's Which is that really, great. really good. Yeah, it's really... I'll have to check out the actual numbers. So don't quote me on that, but <laughs> it's pretty... It's pretty close. So, all right, Sean. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Let's do these bonus questions. Right, and cool. uh, to those listening later, these bonus questions used to be, uh, I don't want to say secret, but they were provided exclusively for the, the uh, Patreon community, but that's now kind of defunct and I'm trying to shift to this new subscription method. So if you did enjoy today's episode, um, it doesn't, it looks like we have one person actually who tuned in here. We have three people and uh, there's only two on screen. So if you did tune in, today why don't you throw a, a note up in the chat there and, and tell us where you're from and if you have any listener questions um i was going to invite you to ask them but i don't see that you've made your name public or anything so i can't actually invite you so if you are there and you're watching this and you have any questions go ahead and post them in the chat but for those watching later on youtube what i was saying is is that uh, the idea with this new clarinet live is that the clarinet will be live so this is a live interview we're doing this there'll be less kind of editing um behind the scenes uh, as far as like sh- tightening up the episode like I normally do, but we're going to get video and uh, all these questions and things are now going to be available for everyone, free for everyone to listen to. Um, but if you do want to be able to tune in here uh, at the live interview with the artist uh, that I'm interviewing and ask your own listener questions, there will be a bit of a, um, I don't want to call it, I don't like calling it a paywall, but <laughs> that's kind of what it is, I guess. Uh, but just to try and support it because, you know, behind the scenes, Brian, our editor, I want him to get paid. I want him to be doing his best work for us and uh, he does a great job. So um, anyway, it's a bit more expensive to do it this way, but I want to do it this way. So if you do like this kind of thing, you want to tune in, uh, please do consider supporting the production of the program and becoming a subscriber at clarinet.com. I just want to say also, I don't want money to be a barrier for anyone to enjoy the Clarinet podcast. If you want to tune in live, I'm going to have a student level of, of uh, participation. And if you're really struggling or something, just send me a message. We're, we'll make it work if you want to, if you want to tune in. Okay. So uh, yeah, let's get started with the last bit here. So musical questions for Sean. What, is your very first or most profound musical memory? 
So, um, I mean, I, I don't can't remember really the first thing. Um, I remember the first <laughs> song that I ever memorized was Coven's One Tin Soldier, which was a hit when I was in second grade. And, uh, but I think the most profound sort of early thing was that, um, like many people who become musicians, my, my junior high band director was really important to me. And he, the ninth grade band, when I was in seventh grade, was doing the Marriage of Figaro Overture. And anybody who's played the band version of that knows the clarinets have a fantastically wicked part and fun and playing lots of fast notes and everything like that. And I, I just loved listening to them play it. I would, I would leave the lunch period early to go sit in the band room while the Ninth Gate Band was rehearsing and, and listen to them rehearse because I liked it so much. And prior to that, I, I just didn't practice really at all. I was ninth chair in the seventh grade band. I, you know. And then I started practicing. And next year, I was first chair in the ninth grade band. So, you know, practicing works. <laughs> Funny how that works, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Funny how that that's, works. It's very true. Yeah. That's great. Um, what is the best piece, besides maybe practicing, we just heard that one, but <laughs> the best piece of musical advice you ever got and who gave it to you? And also, or instead, maybe something that people take as advice that they should avoid? Um, golly. Well, you know, um, I have to say, I've gotten a lot of great advice over the years. Uh, something that was springing to mind today was uh, talking to Richard Stoltzman once uh, when we were at Marlboro. And uh, he told me, I asked him, you know, how, because I was thinking, you know, I'd like to do more solo stuff. I'd like to do a solo career. And here's Richard Stoltzman, you know, going to ask him a question. Okay. And he said that it was really important to make the music your own because why would anybody pay money to go hear you play something when they could just hear somebody else play something they need to have a reason to come hear you play it they can hear anybody play brown sonata they want to hear you play brown sonata and why do they want to hear you play brown sonata because you do it in a way that is more interesting or different or unique and i think that's really important i think that you don't want to do that at the expense of what is you know, stylistically appropriate, like you're not going to ornament Brahms as if it was Bach and you're not going to play <laughs> Mozart as if it was Brahms. But you've got to have some character. You've got to have something in it. And, you know, Dick really has a lot of personality in whatever he plays. And so he, he really is, you know, when you go to hear him, you're going to hear him and that's great. And so that was very helpful, I have to say. You know, it reminds me of Glenn Gould, who is, the, of course, the famous Canadian pianist. Um, but he was famous especially for his bizarre kind of interpretations of, of uh, you know, Bach, for example. And But that is kind of what made what made it, you know. People, you're right, people could listen to the Goldberg variations played the way it's supposed to be played by anybody. But there was only one version of his, you know, that was really still now but captivating and interesting and and uh, actually he played two full recordings of that i suppose which right. are both very different but but um yeah um what was the best investment you ever made in your musical career and it could be time that you spent it could be money that you invested that turned into something as far as like a lessons or what what do you think it was i mean gosh that's that's a really hard one to answer i, I mean i would have to say that there's some some great decisions that i made that have been helpful and you know there's some missed opportunities that of course fly by you i was say one of the best things i did was when the men said hey we'd like to hire you i said yes <laughs> and one of the other <laughs> best things i said was all right met i've had enough goodbye you know yeah so those were both really important and good decisions um you know founding Doing the clarinetismo thing for a long time was really good. One thing I wish I had done earlier is I wish I had incorporated it as a 501c3 earlier. And that's the in the U.S., the nonprofit status. And it's actually, when you have a small budget, it's very easy to do. So I would encourage anybody out there who's thinking of doing that, absolutely incorporate, have your nonprofit. It'll open up so many grants and possibilities for you to program things that you want to do or, you know, serve communities that you want to serve. Um, so I don't know that's if that's, a great idea. that's the answer, but yeah, I don't know what that's called in other countries, even my own, but, but there must be maybe just a nonprofit. I think they call it here, yeah, but uh, that is a good idea. Status, status kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I think you answered this question maybe briefly at the beginning, but what piece of music or album changed your life the most and why? Yeah, that's a tough one, really, because, you know, I love music. I love music so much, and I love so much music, and that's that's a really hard thing to say. I will say one thing that did change my life quite a bit was when I was working on my master's degree. I read a book by Kyle Gann called American Music in the 20th Century, and I had no idea that there were those things that were going on in music, and it was humongously influential on my performance and composition and the, the types of things that I program and why. Um, yeah, so picking a piece of music that could do that, oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, when that band was playing Marriage Figure, that was certainly one of the things. Um, yeah, it's it's that's a tough thing to answer because there are just so many hundreds of examples of, of things that just changed changed my life by hearing them or by playing them. But not one of the mix-ups, like the peak. I guess you said the Marriage Figure, oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe one of the... Windows XP. (laughs) 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 I love that. Um, So the last question here about the music stuff. Have you ever cracked a clarinet? If so, what's the story? And if not, what's your secret? So I did crack my first wooden clarinet. Oh, no. Um, It was a buffet R13. And uh, we had saved up. You know, my parents were like... My parents were not supportive. and uh, But occasionally they would do something that sort of helped. And one of the things that they did is when I was a sophomore in high school, they bought me a wooden clarinet and uh, it cracked less than six months later, which meant it was completely under warranty. And so Buffet sent me a new joint. And so I'm not sure why it cracked. Sometimes clarinets just crack, especially when they're new. Um, And after that, none of them have ever cracked. Do you have any specific regimen that you use to take care of them right now? or You know, I don't. And I've never oiled my clarinets. And Maury Bakun was just very upset with me the last time I saw him. I'm plugging my ears. I can't hear this. Because <laughs> he's, uh, he's a big believer in oiling. And uh, so yeah. I'm going to get him oiled for the first time. And uh, you know, the thing about Maury is like, you know, all these people say, oh, if you do this, it'll do this to the clarinet. And Warren's really the only guy who I've ever seen like can actually do the things that he says he can do, and so um, yeah, I, I listen to him. Yeah, that's good advice. Listen to Maury. <laughs> what about your reads? Do you humidify your reads at all? Or I mean, I Seattle's such a great climate. You know, I I uh, I started. Uh, when I went to Interlochen, and uh, Frank Kowalski was like, here, it's very dry in the winter, so here, you get some Ziploc bags, and you get a sponge full of salt water, and you, you know, and so I do a very low-tech thing, and it works great, and I make my own reeds, so, you know, it works for them. You make your own reeds, too. Yeah. Yeah, we're from Hasty at, in uh at the Eastman School of Music, and I think it's a, a really important skill for all clarinetists to know how to do. It's becoming more rare with, with those lazy people like me who use synthetics. <laughs> it is, it is. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. In, in reeds these days, and so, yeah. you know, back when I was uh, starting out, when I was learning to make reeds, it was kind of Van Doren or nothing. There were a few others, and, and Van Doren's were, were not very good back then, so, and there was only one model. Yeah, there's been an explosion. I mean, you know, it's almost like it reminds me of the craft brewing industry. Everyone's like making craft right. reads now. <laughs> you know, it's like exactly. a, it's become a little thing. You should start a little uh, side business selling those. Yeah, be great. craft reads. I hear Brad Bain is making reads, and he does. Great He's making work. reads. Oh, there's a few others great. making reads. Um, who is there? Some of them I recently heard. And uh, but yeah, the, the sort of craft reading thing is. It's sort of interesting. I, I heard something gross though with the bassoon reads. I guess they have to be play tested a lot while they're making them. And then yeah, so I think like, they do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and they have to, like, know, dip them. antiseptic. I guess, yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right, so five more quick questions here. Um, you have to live every day by a single quote. What is it, and who said it? Oh, my God. I, yeah, no, I can't. I don't know. <laughs> you can't? Um, yeah. It's super inspirational you know, every, here. <laughs> every, every, every day I see something new on Facebook that I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Sorry. The latest quote from Facebook, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, we can go with that. That's all right, that's all right. Um, if you could travel back in time to have dinner with any person, doesn't have to be a musician, who would it be and why? 
Um, you know that's a difficult question. Also, these are these are great questions. They're tough to answer quickly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a great <laughs> admirer of many people uh, historically. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is certainly one of them. Um, but I've I've often throughout my life thought about what would it be like to have a conversation with Mozart, and I mm. think that would just be so cool to do and interesting. And I'd probably hear a lot of fart jokes. <laughs> Speaking of jokes, I meant to ask you, you've got so many jokes listed on your website. What's the story? Do you love do you love comedy? Oh I do. Yeah. Musical I'm a jokes. Big fan yeah. of stand up also. And uh, okay. you know, that, that Canadian show Letterkenny Man. I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, That's so great. yeah, the big lots of jokes on the website. Do you have a good clarinet joke we could tell here? Uh let's see. Um how many clarinets does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know. Just one, but he has to go through the whole box of light bulbs to find the right one. <laughs> That's great. I love that. I'm trying to think if I have a good musical joke right now. Um, this is one, I guess. I don't know if it's appropriate, but it's not inappropriate. But <laughs> So what's the difference between a clarinet and a bassoon? I don't know. The bassoon burns longer. No, <laughs> uh, you know the difference between a bassoon and a novo? You can hit a baseball a lot further with a bassoon. <laughs> <laughs> that's great that's great yeah those those jokes were not made by a clarinetist for sure no no one burns their clarinet actually i wonder if anyone ever has I, you know anyway actually, grenadilla is fireproof is it well, i that, did that's not how know it that. you learn something new every day yeah that's oh, how it evolved the heartwood of that tree stays and lives on if a fire sweeps through the area no I mean, way. I wouldn't say fireproof, is... but you throw it in the sun. So, so it can survive like a forest fire, though, yep. and then the, the... Oh, that is so interesting. I guess it's just so dense. Yep. That is super cool. And that's maybe how they get so old and dense. They, they survive fires. Yep. That's crazy. Never thought about that. You know, it'd be a cool interview one day is like to have someone on who like grows those trees or something. Who knows yeah, about well, them you could talk to the, this is the Daraja Initiative. They are awesome. Yeah, just to learn about these woods that we all have been blowing into for so long, yeah, you know, yeah. crazy. Um, if you could start your career all over again, but could not choose music, what else would you do? Um, you know, at this point I'd probably run, a, a board game pub, a board game pub. I love, Hey, you games. still could. There's, so There's still time. time. But I like gardening too. That used to be my answer. I'd be a gardener, but I think I like board gaming is, more now. Is that a big thing down in Seattle? This kind of, do yeah, they have it those? Is, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. We've got some video game ones here, which I've never been to, but, but um, yeah, I've never heard of a board game one. That's a great idea. Yeah. Drink and play whatever games you want, I guess. So along the same lines, what other passions or interests do you have outside of music? I guess we got board games. We got. <laughs> yeah, um, well, gardening, and uh, I like weightlifting, and I like hiking. Uh, those are fun. Um, really, I mean, I, I like composition a lot, and... I like being with friends and, you know, just a small group. It's kind of why I probably like chamber music, too. It's the same thing. It's sort of a, you know, four or five people in conversation. That's that's just a lovely way to pass an evening. When you're gardening, are you growing, like, fruit and, and canning it or herbs or vegetables? Or what do you what do you well, grow? herbs, veggies, flowers. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I do a bit of that, too. I've got a big indoor thing, and I nice. tried growing cucumbers indoor last year. It was great, actually. I had cucumbers all winter, which was bizarre. Oh, wonderful. Um, running this giant cucumber thing around wow. my stairs. Anyway, <laughs> what is something about you? Last question, uh, such as a collection or a habit, a hobby, experience, something crazy that I would just never guess. Um, well, I've helped birth about two dozen puppies. Oh, wow. In my oh, mom had a kennel that. <laughs> and, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Like two dozen puppies, like two dozen litters or like... Two dozen individual puppies. At one point, we had we had a litter of a litter of nine and a litter of five simultaneously. Oh wow! It was a lot. That's, crazy. Of that's a lot of puppies. That's a lot of puppies. <laughs> yeah, crazy. Well, thank you so much. I know that's a. Uh, I love those last few questions though, because we really get to learn about you know, um, not just the musician but the person. And I, that's uh, why I like those last few. It's kind of fun, kind of interesting. But uh, thank you, Sean, so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. We are wow. We did almost exactly an hour. That's perfect timing. Great. And uh, thank you to those watching this on YouTube. Again, do not forget to check out uh, Sean's website, osbornmusic.com. I think the other one was orcaconcerts.org. Orca Orca and of course, if you enjoyed this episode today and you want to be able to tune in to future ones live, you can check it out at clarinet.com slash live. Uh, thank you so much, Sean, for coming thank on you. the program today. And thank you to all tuning in on YouTube and everywhere else around the world. 
watching Kony podcast. The Clarinet Podcast is brought to you in part by one of my favorite products ever, Bova the Two-Way Humidity Control Packs. I live in a super dry and cold climate in Canada, and so taking care of my instruments is a real challenge. However, it's effortless with Bovida. Every three months, I just replace the Bovida pack in my case, and I know my clarinets will be comfy and cozy inside. If you use cane reeds, there's also a mini version that fits inside most reed cases and keeps your reeds at their best, so they're ready to play when you are. Check out Bovida's offerings for clarinetists at bovidainc.com and use code CLARINET at checkout to save 10% on your next purchase. Click the link in the description below to learn more.